This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and with the help of comrades Pallas Shaw, Roxana Espos, and Bernadine Dorn, we're broadcasting in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're broadcasting today from Arcata, California, the traditional lands of the Wiyot people. We remember the long history of stolen land and resources, genocide, oppression, and exploitation, and we honor the resistance as we keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. Our first traditional feature is the quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. Today, we're blessed to have something a bit more raucous, and that is the dazzling singer-songwriter Joanne Rand, who will join us with a couple of tunes. We'll hear from her later, but let's start with a song she recorded called Happy Song, written by one of her students. I like to beat my hair against my face. I like a skirt that is soft against my legs. Make it pink and swirl when I spend, cause that's the mood I'm in. I like to drink coffee with my toast. I like to eat dark chocolate the most. Make it sweet and filled with cream. Cause that's the mood I'm in. Hey, happy mood, happy mood, happy mood I'm in. Hey, happy mood I'm in.
Our second regular feature is a free write. So pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly or meditate freely. No need for edits or revisions or rethinking in response to this prompt. What do you do every day to find happiness? What do you do to organize collective happiness with your chosen family? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Today we're going to talk about trees. The forest is disappearing and along with it entire ecosystems. This is not something distant from us. This is us. The power of a tree is the very air we breathe. Two and a half billion years ago, enough oxygen had built up on Earth to support multicellular life, and the first trees evolved around 400 400 million years ago. The first primates appeared 55 million years ago, living in trees in the rainforests. In the past 10,000 years, the Earth has lost one-third of its forest, almost all of it in the last few hundred years. And the recent loss is caused not by ice or fire, ice or earthquakes, but by deliberate acts of human beings. We're talking in the backyard of his Arcata home with an extraordinary writer and activist named Greg King, author most recently of The Ghost Forest, Racists, Radicals, and Real Estate in the California Redwoods. Greg, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. And it's so nice to be in your backyard with your dog running around, barking probably occasionally. He might be quiet. There's a small chance. Well, I see him (laughs) sleeping in the sun over there. But I should tell people, first of all, that we are outdoors, and you will hear the, the sounds of the outdoors, which is appropriate fitting but we're also under a tree and so we we record this thing we call it under the tree which is a metaphor for education as something that can occur anywhere but here we are under a beautiful tree what kind of tree this is a magnolia tree it's beautiful and a very wonderful backyard and we're here with bernadine with joanne rand and with greg king so your subtitle we could begin almost anywhere racist radicals in real estate maybe first of all just tell us how you came to write this monumental book oh the book was a long time in coming you could almost say a lifetime but i don't want to you know aggrandize it too much uh but I was an activist, as you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, trying to protect the very last ancient redwoods left outside of parks, uh, taken over by a Houston company called Maxam. Uh, they took over the Pacific Lumber Company in Humboldt County, the last privately held virgin redwood groves. And that was, I started as a journalist. Um, and that got me into a lot of different types of research, especially laws that revolved around uh, timber cutting. And then I just quit my job and had to become an activist to do something about this cutting that was extraordinarily fast. Was that a hard decision? I mean, to say I'm leaving this life and going over here? At first, it was extremely difficult. I had just been offered the editor's position at a newspaper. I was uh, 25 years old. It was a career goal since I was 18. But... Then I viewed the forest at stake for the first time. And, and this is covered in the book, this moment 
when the forest of a really wild redwood forest, which I'd known the redwoods all my life, but never had experienced a wild redwood forest. It, you can feel it. And I did. I felt it before I even got in it. And I realized in that instant, I can't take this job. I have to do something about these are the last redwoods, the very last ones outside of parks. And you say you feel it before you step into it. Say another word about that. Uh, it was as if the forest was reaching out. You know, it is a living, sentient being, a, a single organism really almost made up, but made up of myriad parts. Not only the incredibly massive trees, which are, you know, pummeling water through their systems, 500 gallons a day from really? some individual redwood trees. Wow. Uh, and so there's that, that life force. Uh, and there is no human intrusion in these groves. Uh, maybe a, a, a forester, a surveyor, uh, but really, unlike the parks where you have the trails and a lot of roads in the parks and a lot of people, there was nothing like that in here. And I think it just is uh, palpable. It's something that you can, any person, any living being, being next to these groves, if you could visualize it maybe with these, these lines of sound coming out of them, right? Where it's not sound, but it's, it's energy. And, and just, uh, it just grabbed me. I mean, it just grabbed me. And I, I knew in that moment, standing there just outside the forest looking in, that I had to not take the job. Was this Sally Bell Grove? This was actually what we called all um, Owl Creek Grove. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Sally Bell Grove was prior to this, and it was owned by a different company, Georgia Pacific, and it was tiny. It was 75 acres, but it was the very last ancient redwood grove left on the famous Lost Coast uh, in Humboldt County. You know, I have to make a contrast. One of the things I th find fascinating, when you talk about, and, and you capture this in the book, but when you talk about the, far, the redwoods and you talk about the trees, you're talking about something palpable, living, breathing, talking, you know, pumping water, pumping life. And yet, when the log, when the timber industry talks about them, they talk about bored feet. Yes. Say a word about bored feet and the different metrics that people are using to describe the very th same thing standing in front of you. Yeah, that's an excellent point. You know, the metrics, I think, are what have gotten us in such trouble, right. where everything is reduced to a figure that corresponds with a profit number. Right. And when you grid out lands uh, into cities and parcels and large tracts, uh, and when you uh, reduce a, a living fabulous forest to a number yeah. that will be later converted to cash in a mill, and then what's left is devastation, but that doesn't matter because you've got your cash. Right. It really speaks to why we are in uh, can I say deep shit yeah, on your you podcast? Can. Of course, please. You can go f further than that. <laughs> further than that, and I usually do. Uh, and it just um, is clear. And it's, I think it always was clear. Even in the 19th century, you couldn't convert one of these fabulous old-growth redwood groves um, of really mythic proportions of, of you know, the, where the ancient qualities, you can be inside there and feel that. Uh, you could not convert that uh, to this tragedy of landscape without feeling it. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of the loggers uh, originally who cut them, who were powerless, you know, uh, controlled by working, the corporations, working, yeah, working people. Yeah, yeah and, and they were always, we always felt we were on their side as well. Right. Um, but uh, you can't do that, I don't think, without feeling it and understanding it. But it's interesting because the awe that you feel and describe so beautifully in the book but the timber industry looked at the tree and felt awe also because give us some of the numbers like one old growth redwood would produce how many uh, feet of of, uh, of 
lumber? Right. Well, th- there's a metric wh- that I use in the book quite a bit where some of the best eastern pine forests, which were renowned, <clears throat> uh, went, you know, in the 19th century into the early 20th century, uh, held 30,000 board feet to 50,000 board feet per acre. Yeah, that's the word, board feet. I was searching for it. Right. right. And the uh, an individual redwood tree, a large one, can hold 200,000 board feet, and the largest ever known was over a million board feet. Holy cow. And so they, the Western industrialists, the capitalists, stumbled into this, not stumbled into, they looked for everything, you know, in their, right. in their purview, uh, and they found the redwoods, and by, when they were able to finally cut down and begin to mill the very unwieldy trees, they understood the treasure trove, not just because of the sheer volume, but also due to proximity to uh, quickly expanding markets, especially starting in the 1880s, but, and with San Francisco as a, a city-state conduit for the lumber and the profits. But there's the proximity, um, but there's, and the volume, but there's also the high quality yeah. of the redwood lumber, the yeah. very high quality that was usable for things that no other wood was. And I get into that in the book. Yeah. And how did they, in the mid-19th century, how could they cut down a monstrously large tree like this? Yeah. I mean, how did they do it? Literally, how did they do it? Well, they were so big, and the lower portions of the redwoods were so heavy uh, that if they had cut at base level, say, three or four feet off the ground, then the logs, the, the biggest logs, would uh, sink in mill ponds and in what was uh, stream transport was used quite a bit, right. uh, incredibly destructive, and so it messed things up. Also, the redwood butt swell uh, was very wide at the bottom very often, and so they would build scaffolding 10 to 20 feet up Wow. into the tree, and then cut these gut things with axes and handsaws. Uh, and it would take sometimes a week to cut a single tree. Uh, and then you had, you know, uh, 10 acres of eastern pine forest lumber sitting there from the one tree. So it, right. was, it was quite worth it to the people For who them, yes. were doing this. Yeah. You describe... Um your awe at discovering some of this. And maybe I can ask you to read a couple of paragraphs from your book. This is about, um, this is where you are in Sally Bell Grove. The clear cut was a desolate ruin. I continued uphill as best I could, straight up, diagonal, side hill, back down. I came to a large redwood stump and climbed aboard. Looking back the way I'd come, I saw that Sally Bell Grove formed a rectangle of trees like a zipper down the center of Little Jackass Watershed. Expanding outward from both sides of the zipper were near-vertical slopes, sprouting not a single standing tree. The forest, once a living relic of an ancient past, had been raised. I continued looping in a northwesterly arc, aiming to rejoin Sally Bell Grove near the middle of the zipper but I was blocked by an immense landslide. The entire slope had failed from the top of the ridge at 1,400 feet elevation for a quarter mile straight into one of the tributaries of Little Jackass Creek. Laying across the slide was a redwood that had stood taller than 200 feet and was eight feet wide at the base. I crawled up a slash pile at the butt end of the tree, ascended the bowl, and walked to the middle of the tree. I stood 20 feet above the deeply incised slide. Mud and debris loose by the slide had dumped into the creek and created a dam at least 10 feet thick. My knees gave slightly, and I began to sob. The carnage was a shock, the tears a surprise. For reasons still a mystery to me, 
It was the first and last time I would cry at the sight of a clear cut. I wrote in my journal, I wonder how much the Sally Bell trip will eventually change my life. I am inspired, charged, revolted by it all so much that I know its impact will be substantial. I didn't know the half of it. So what is the half of it? Oh, that I would eventually be quitting my reporter's job, right. turning down the editor's job, camping 150 feet in the canopy of trees, being assaulted, uh, going to Sacramento and Washington, D.C., and writing letters and not having any money to do any of it. And, uh, and you know, and then, as you know, the, uh, in 1990, my closest friends and colleagues were victims of a car bomb assassination attempt in Oakland, California, and things spiraled out of control from there. And uh, it was, uh, I had no idea... That, how this one forest journey would change my life, but it absolutely took me on a completely different path, uh, unexpected. And you were a militant with Earth First. Yes, I was a, a co-founder of Humboldt County Earth First That's with Daryl right. Cherney. With Daryl Cherney and, <clears throat> and the two people you refer to are Daryl and Judy Barry. Yes. And uh, they were both extraordinary people. Um, I don't know where Daryl is now. Where is Daryl now? Daryl's in Humboldt County. He's in Southern yeah. Humboldt and uh, doing well. Okay. Uh, yeah, he has a family, yeah. and uh, yeah, and Daryl's well. Judy unfortunately died in 1997 of breast cancer, almost certainly hastened by the the bombing, which uh, crippled her for life. Right. Uh, and uh, she didn't uh, engage in Western medicine so much to. She didn't feel it was operable, um, and also she was in such pain, mm. and and really lived in fear. Um, yeah. She woke up in thinking people were going to kill her at any time. Well, you lived in fear, too, to some degree. I mean, you were under threat, for sure. I mean, the timber industry wasn't playing. No, we were all really targets. Yeah. And one of the things I think is relevant for activists and militants today, environmental activists, but also Black Lives Matter activists, is that the narrative that the timber industry and the politicians were able to spin about Earth First um, was really destructive and and kind of put you in the crosshairs of a uh, of a of a target, right? I mean, yes. they put a target on your backs and they did it systematically. And I remember, you know, we're not subject to the propaganda of the man so much, but I remember reading again and again about how Earth First were crazy and Earth First were, you know hurting loggers and Earth First were um, destroying property terrorists. mindlessly. And you were terrorists. You were eco-terrorists. Yeah. 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 And all we did was, you know, really uh, practice civil disobedience. Um, there were Earth Firsters who, who did property destruction, which, you know, the authorities would call terrorism. We didn't do that. We foreswore that early. Uh, we didn't believe in it. And we also wanted to kind of transform uh, the whole argument in, in terms of property destruction, because it wasn't, it didn't do anything uh, right. except raise animosity. Right. Uh, so we were really trying to go the MLK route, the Gandhi route, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, where we were putting our lives on the line and, uh, you know, trying to enforce state and federal laws, which uh, regulators were not. Uh, and, you know, so we, you know, sat in front of the bulldozers, sat in front of the logging trucks. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, David Gypsy Chain was simply standing in a forest to keep the trees from being cut down in 1998. And a logger who had threatened to kill them uh, earlier in the day and the day before did drop the tree on him right on top of him. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, and, and I'm glad you, you mentioned, you know, Black Lives Matter and then, you know, there were the Black Panthers, the American Indian Movement, uh, all these groups that were simply trying to wrest some 
kind of relief from the horrors that they were living through and the indignity of the lives that were forced upon them. Uh, we didn't have that so much. We were mostly white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but we were still targeted in the same way, yeah. uh, especially by the FBI, Oakland police. Um, and, and we understood early the risks of that yeah. uh, because of those examples. Right. Um, it would have been much worse for us if we hadn't been white and we knew that. Yeah. So, but we at least used our white privilege to do something to uh, counteract this destructive, uh, you know, uh, these destructive operations in the forest. What were, what are your relations with the indigenous movements? I mean, how do you see your work in terms of, I mean, what's rising now is a a very reinvigorated indigenous um, uh, uh, voice and and, uh, presence. Yes. What, what was your relationship? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, we were young and fairly uh, ignorant of the need really to reach out. And I think we were um, in some ways offensive to uh, some of the native peoples in this area. Not entirely. Um, <clears throat> I remember organizing in 1988 a large gathering, an Earth First gathering in um up on the Salmon River. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't invited the tribal peoples to uh, participate, uh, to even be there. I didn't know that they mm. were even there. That's pretty frightening, right? Yes, and, right. And, and, and yet yeah. it's, a, it's true for all of us, and that was uh, also conscious on the part of power. Exactly, Yeah. exactly. So, you know, white guy from Sonoma County comes up here, doesn't know anything. Yeah. And so what was wonderful, there was um, a Native woman, a very powerful woman uh, named Gina Rett, yeah. Uh, who lived there, and uh, she came into our camp and with um, some of her uh, relatives and friends from the tribe and uh, said, well, this is, this is our land. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't really consult with us. Mm-hmm. And big light bulb moment, mm-hmm. a really mm-hmm. very important. And we talked for a long time, and later we became good friends, especially when we moved out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she understood the d- dynamic as well, and a very wise person. And so... Um, now, you know, what's really wonderful is that the tribes in this area, um, have increasing power and have, uh, really, um, moved forward with some excellent, uh, especially, uh, environmental initiatives, bringing back the condor, um, getting the dams down on the Klamath, uh, large part due to tribal work, uh, in our organization or my, what I head up is Siskiyou Land Conservancy. We, uh, oppose an onshore, uh, wind factory uh, for a primary eagle and marbled merlet flyway up on Bear River Ridge. And we were kind of a lone voice among environmentalists because everyone was so uh, concerned about climate change that they wanted these these windmills, these giant windmills. The WIAT stepped in, and with their authority, we're able to get it shut down. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah. And, and so we're seeing more and more of that and, and really appreciate that that is happening. And they, the tribes have had to work, as you know, for decades yeah. to make this happen. But what I, what's interesting to me about your story so far is, among many other things, you were inspired by the black civil rights movement. You were inspired by King, inspired by the Black Panthers. And I know that Judy Berry at one point and you organized a thing you called Redwood Summer. Right, and it was modeled after Freedom Summer in Mississippi, right? Right, and it didn't come off quite the way you'd hoped. But I think the the it's worth noting the inspiration that the Black Movement had on your 
on your lives as young radicals, young militants. Yes, and Judy in particular was a much more seasoned activist, mm-hmm. and, and really she came up with this idea. I was kind of moving by 1989 out of the movement. It was a, There was a high rate of attrition, which we saw again in 1990 come to the fore uh, in, in force. Uh, and... So it was originally called a Mississippi Summer in the Redwoods, uh-huh. and you know that had to be changed quickly because yeah. it was such a you know yeah. it was not not a great title for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, but that was the inspiration right. was bring thousands of especially young people right. to the forest. And you face this, as I say, this kind of onslaught around change around a certain narrative about who you were, eco terrorists, and so on. I wonder if people like Extinction Rebellion and uh, some of the militants today, the environmental militants, have learned things from your experience of being, you know, kind of um, targeted, under attack. I wonder if they take that into consideration. Do you, do you have a sense of that? I don't know, and I, I'm rather out of touch, and it's unfortunate. I can say that we didn't know nearly as much as we should have. Uh, when we started doing direct action about our predecessors in the United States. Uh, we, you know, which is also not uncommon. No, I would say it's absolutely common. We <laughs> we sometimes call ourselves the United States of amnesia. Because, exactly. Because we, we were part of what was called the new left, and we were very proud of the fact that we weren't part of the old communist left. We were the new left, more militant, more determined, certain to make a revolution. But we did lose something by being the new left. We lost, you know, generational wisdom. And, yes. and there's something, you know, mistaken about that. Yeah, but and very American. Very American. Yes. <laughs> Just everything starting from yeah. from now and from me. Yes. Um, but but since we got into the question of you becoming an activist and, and uh, among the many things you did, you did sit in a tree for a while. Can you describe what that's like for people who can't quite imagine? And maybe begin by describing, again, a redwood. I mean, a redwood is a massive tree and you're in a grove and you go up in a tree how did you do that right well and how answer, did you survive right to answer the second question first um the largest redwood coast redwood found uh was the one that was over a million board feet and that was the lindsey creek tree and it's about well about five miles from where we're sitting right now is the stump which i've measured 33 feet across without the bark wow and so a 35 feet with the bark and it's wider than my house. Wow. So that's the size kind of we're talking about. We didn't find trees that big on uh, Pacific Lumberland. We, the largest we found was between 20 and 22 feet in diameter. Uh, I sat for the first time in a redwood on Elk River that was 10 feet across. And the second time uh, up and over the ridge in a tributary to Lawrence Creek um, that we called all, all, in all species grove that was 13 feet across. Mm-hmm. So to, to climb these first, we had you know you've seen the guys and gals on the power poles uh, with the lanyard around it, and they have the spurs on their boots and they go mm-hmm. up the pole. So that is how the old school tree climbers uh, climb trees, and that's how we taught ourselves to climb. And they were so big that we had to have two climbers per tree, one of whom would be opposite on the other side and would lift the one climber's rope and then go up. That person would go up three or four feet and then the next one would do the same thing and lift the rope. And that's how we did it. When I was in the tree the second time at, uh, you know, the 13 foot diameter tree, and it was eight feet diameter at a hundred feet up, uh, still a big tree at a hundred feet up. 
the Pacific Lumber climber named Dan Collings uh, climbed up to try and get me and my stuff down. It didn't work. But uh, he, he tried in what sense? Did he make a physical confrontation? No, he, he would later, and other climbers would later. In the 90s, the tree sitters uh, went through a lot of attrition from the climbers and uh, actually sued because uh, they were so brutalized and put in Physically such... assaulted. Yeah, yeah, dragged out of trees. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. you know, 100 feet up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he he was pretty mellow at this point. I think there was a lot of pressure from the uh, corporation, Max Am, especially out of Houston, to be more physical. And the sheriff went along with it, of course. Uh, so in any case, he climbed with a chain. And he covered in about a half an hour what took our guys four hours to cover coming up. Wow. And getting back to another um, issue about, you know, did the loggers feel these woods uh, you know, of course, I think everybody does. But I, and I mentioned this in the book that he, when he climbed up to kind of get me, or at least try to get my banner or my water or something, um, he stopped at that hundred foot mark, and I could he- hear him. We're, we've been talking, and you know, it was kind of a, a interesting rapport. Uh, we could have been brothers. You yeah. Know? Uh, and uh, he stopped and he looked around, and we're in the middle of this thousand acre grove, uh, one of the finest uh, stands of redwood left anywhere, uh, much less on Max Am land now. Um, and just very still and quiet and, and numinous. And he just stopped and he looked around. And he didn't say, and he said to no one in particular, "Nice tree." Mm. And I, <laughs> wow, a real you know appreciation. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think he'd ever climbed in a grove that wasn't being logged. Wow, you know he always climbed to uh, set up a cable line uh, for yarding or something, and would top the tree and you know and then watch the rest of the forest around him get cut down. Um, so it may be it may be that he had never climbed in the middle yeah. of one of these groves. Yeah, you know what you said earlier about that that the working class guys who were doing the cutting weren't exactly your enemy, although they were doing kind of enemy work. And that reminded me very much of our relationship with uh, GIs during the Vietnam War. I mean, on the one hand, we tried to organize them. We set up coffee shops. We wanted to speak to them. We wanted to convince them. And they were sympathetic on some level. Uh, But at the same time, they were doing the nasty work of empire. And you couldn't let go of that contradiction. They are doing the nasty work, but we don't literally want to hurt them. We want to be on their side, getting them their lives saved and getting them not to engage in this brutality for for the sake of empire. So in a funny way, we had this similar relationship with, with the people who were doing the work. Right. I think that you'll find that across the board in a lot of these highly contentious situations the the military the um, resource extractors whomever uh, are going to be working for someone else yeah and we're government and industry arrayed differently and all you know so many employees were offered the chance to um, light touch log in the redwoods or to just be an unarmed person instead of an armed uh, cop but an unarmed person who really is helping people in neighborhoods you know to avoid conflict or something really truly benevolent right they would do it i think if we're set up that way in society and you see other societies where it is set up that way it works Uh, there's an inculcation that i think there's a message here for organizers because you know i now teach in a prison and um and and i went with some of the young um militants out to where they do political education in youth prisons and the guards are sitting right around the circle of where the 
teaching is going on mm. and they're hearing it yeah. and they're hearing right. the discussion about the autobiography of Malcolm X and what are they making of it? Right. And on the one hand, being a teacher in a prison, you're part of the system too. You're part. You're being part of the man mm. for some percentage of the time and then you're trying to create free space where you can do other things. I think it's an important thing for us to always recognize that there are other people that also we could reach if we had a consciousness that said everybody everybody can change yes know, that we all can change and um, we see it i think at this moment in in uh, nelson mandela's autobiography where he's is, one of the guards is talking to him and he says i saw you read such and such a book and mandela says yes it's some radical anti-imperialist book and the guard says, I thought it was good, but I like this other one better. And Mandela <laughs> says, holy cow, you know, what right. are you going to do? And I do think that there's some something to remind ourselves that all of us, I mean, I'm a teacher, lifelong teacher. So I'm, I'm an agent of the state a huge percentage of the time. Mm -hmm. But there's also a percentage of the time where I'm a free agent. Yeah. And using that agency matters, you know. You remind me a little bit of, um, we met our group, you know, of Earth Firsters in 87 or 88 with the Fortuna Chamber of Commerce. You didn't. We did. Wow. And so Fortuna, for those who, the people who don't know Humboldt County, it was a de facto company-owned town of Pacific Lumber at the time. And it still is a, a very conservative town. Uh, and at the time, it was, you know, very pro-timber, right. which was to be expected. And so we met with the Chamber of Commerce, and, and it was wonderful. And we were wild-looking, you know, long hair, beards, the whole thing. And the, one of the guys at the end, a conservative older man, but very nice and well-spoken, uh, he came up, and he, um, I had my friend Mokai, who was with me, and he's in the book. And this man came up, and he's, he's shaking at us Mao's Little Red Book. Wow. And he said, this is what you guys are. You guys are just communists. Mm -hmm. and, and Mokai said... I've read that. I don't agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He gets some things wrong. <laughs> yeah, he gets some things wrong, right. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> um, you know, the, the thing that I find remarkable in the book is that you're telling, there's a way in which your memoir, going back generations in a family that came to Sonoma County, Humboldt County, generations ago, and your memoir is a memoir of an activist, but it somehow blends in seamlessly with a memoir of the Redwood Forest and what happened to them. And there's some way in which you've done a triple memoir. And in a way, your subtitle, Racist Radicals in Real Estate, you've got all of those in there, but you've got your own story woven in. Say a word about writing and how you, I mean, I know you did a ton of research because the book is really, really thoroughly researched it's also thoroughly readable which i find remarkable and you weave back and forth between a personal story a, a generational story and a kind of a geological story you know i mean mm. you, you back through the ages how did you find your way to doing that how did you find the structure of this book yeah that's it's a great question and it kind of harkens back to one of your earlier questions is you know how did i get into this um to get doing something that expansive and the about 2009 i decided that because i had started this book several times and it i didn't like it and i realized what's missing here is history uh -huh. and it's too much about me us you know in that era and there's we were just kind of this end point you know there was a lot more going on i wanted to uh, expand 
And so I started interviewing uh, elders who had been involved with the Redwood National Park struggle. And that really started this deep dive. And then that decade, the following decade, the 2010s, there was a serendipitous thing that happened where the Save the Redwoods League archives uh, were curated and organized at UC Berkeley's Bancroft Library. And I started going down there. And there's hundreds of thousands of pages in that archive. And I copied 10,000. Damn. uh, And I read them all. Uh, and you know over years yeah and that was really a launch point into a much deeper analysis and, and a really unknown examination of how the redwoods got logged and by whom and especially why and most people believe that they went all to housing and a lot of redwood is used in housing i live in a redwood house right now and so do all my neighbors um but really industrial uses. This is the thing in the, the research that grabbed me and kept me for years, was the industrial uses of Redwood were critical to the growth and expansion of American industry, especially in the West, which was the fastest growing economy in the world at the time, late 1880s starting, uh, and then into the early 20th century, uh, and remains so, you know, California right now, the fifth yeah. largest economy in the world. It really was the beginning of that. And so, just as an example, the best example, I think, that I can use for this use of redwood uh, were these stave pipes. And neither I nor anybody else I spoke to across the board knew anything about redwood stave pipes. What are they? A redwood stave pipe is um, a pipe that is either, you know, can be a foot in diameter, the widest were 16 feet in diameter, and they usually held water. And they were built out of specially milled redwood that would lock together on the ends, and they'd be 10 to 20 feet long and three inches wide or so, and they would be put together and banded into these pipes. And because redwood did not erode under water uh, like other woods, they would last longer than cast iron, wow. uh, and and uh, they could be stitched across rugged landscapes for miles. Never heard of such a thing. It's astonishing. It's astonishing, yeah. and and so the redwood stave pipe uh, developed in basically in 1892 or per, or perfected uh, by one of the characters in the book C. A. Hooper, Charles Appleton Hooper. Uh, he in 1892 he started the Excelsior Redwood Pipe Company, and that triggered a huge understanding across the world that water could be channeled for miles and brought to places. For instance, a 30-mile redwood stay pipe uh, started the existence of Phoenix, hmm. and we see now that's gone. Yeah, um, didn't work out. <laughs> didn't quite. And uh, the other uses were for sewage outflow. So one of the first ones was built for uh, the city of Los Angeles, a sewage pipe, and it was watched around the country because you didn't want your sewage pipes busting, uh, you know, across the terrain. And uh, then they were used for oil, for transporting oil, and for oil tanks, and for cyanide tanks, for gold leaching, uh, or the the tank, the redwood was used. But it was kind of the same thing, water, and and, then, but the stave pipes, so the, the most important uh, discovery of the use of the stave pipe was to bring enormous amounts of water from dams for miles across usually the Sierra Nevada in California, but also in Niagara, New York, uh, and, and other parts of the West, uh, and they would power turbines. Wow. So the electrification of especially the West, uh, for, and especially for industry, uh, was really made possible by redwood stave pipes 
and the growth and expansion of Western uh, prowess, if you will, economic prowess and, and American uh, would have looked much differently if Redwood hadn't existed. So that was one of the great discoveries. That's a great discovery. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and one of the things you say, you point out, the avaricious, greedy, um, extractive nature of the timber industry and, and these various characters. But you also at one point called the Department of Forestry a, li- a, a, a layer of obfuscation of pre- and prevarication in the service of power. Mm-hmm. Say something about the regulation of the chopping down of the entire forest. So I, I mean, how did they get away with it? Right. Uh, they got away with it through violation of laws, the state as well as the companies. Uh, so the f- law that is um, I'm talking about there is the 1973 Forest Practice Act. Oh, and so still, it's a, that's very recent, yeah. Yes, very recent. Before, there were timber laws, and I described them in the book, right. um, dating back to the 19th century, but they weren't really for regulation of any kind. It was basically to ensure that timber was cut. Uh, and so was the Forest Practice Act. Now, the Forest Practice Act grew out of the 1960s struggle to create a Redwood National Park, and the um, outrage from the public over the clear cutting that was being seen now widely because the public was getting everywhere in their cars after World War II, everything expanded. And um, so the state of California had to do something and so they passed this act. But as I uh, illustrate in the book, uh, what they did was they allowed this board of forestry to create these rules that would be enforced under the act. And the rules um, had all kinds of weasel words in them. Uh, you know, if if at all possible, you know, under the best conditions or whatever. It was a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Weasel words. I like yeah. it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it was a weak law, but it also did have some provisions uh, for enforcement. But what really happened was uh, in 1970, California Environmental Quality Act was passed. Mm. And that law was much stronger. And in the late 70s and early 80s, the courts determined that uh, logging had to adhere to the California Forest Pra- uh, mm. to the California Environmental Quality Act, and that law was violated routinely by the state of California as well as the timber companies. The state of California um, really was the uh, enabler of this, and so what we saw were in the old growth redwoods, the attempts to log these groves were justified by the state of California with comments like the clear cutting of this old growth redwood grove will improve wildlife habitat. Mm. And that was a regular um, write off mm-hmm. by the state of California to allow illegal destruction. And it not only violated CEQA, it violated the Cal- uh, U.S. Endangered Species Act. Right. And that was proven in a federal court later as well. All uh, Max Sam, Pacific Lumber, Louisiana Pacific, Georgia Pacific, any of them that were sued with the, alongside the California Department of Forestry, um, especially throughout the 80s and into the 90s, lost. Right. But you could only sue an individual timber harvest plans. Right. So it was a fail-safe. Right, right. It's amazing because, <clears throat> again, I'm going back to kind of the, the, the way that power creates a, a different narrative about what's going on and how they hammer it, hammer it. So I, I'm thinking about not only the demonization of Earth first, but also um, the idea that, that uh, for example, that clear-cutting is countered by tree planting. I was in a planting crew, um, you know, many, many years, decades ago, mm-hmm. and we planted, you know, um, trees on a slope, right? But the idea that that is the equivalent or that's an answer 
to clear-cutting is a myth. Say a word about that. Right. That it is a myth, and it was very well orchestrated and pirouetted out in front of the public. And it's still there. I mean, it's still yes. there. It plant the tree, and everyone should plant the tree, and then we'll all be better off. Right. Well, what was happening was the uh, destruction and elimination of these incredibly complex forest ecosystems of uh, various ages and uh, species diversity, and they all worked in harmony for millions of years to get to where they were. And then when they were completely cut down and bulldozed, and you looked at these sites and they were burned and there was just nothing green left, then here come the cloned monocultural tree farms, right. uh, you know, <clears throat> planted in rows, fiber farms. And in uh, California, uh, the whole country, uh, morphed into a pulp society. Right. So as if this somehow replaced, in fact, it was almost worse yeah. uh, than doing nothing because it, be, it created the, this massive sterile landscape. Right. So for instance, right now we have the Green Diamond uh, corporation uh, resource company, Green Diamond Resource Company, it was Simpson. And they own 420,000 acres of primarily redwood land in Humboldt and Del Norte County. And it surrounds uh, most of the redwood protected in parks, the ancient redwood. And they log in devastating patchwork clear cuts. And then they spray herbicides and they then they plant these clone trees, super trees, um, and there's zero diversity. And they've received permits uh, under habitat conservation plans to kill endangered species. This is a kind of a Clintonian era end around the the ESA, uh, which is really in force now. And so you, we, you can plant trees. We planted trees. That's the first thing I did. In the, in the book, I mentioned that Sally Bell Grove, there was a tree planting crew right. uh, that, was, that was planting trees in the clear cuts. And, you know, in a way it couldn't hurt, especially if it was just simply allowed to grow back and become a forest again and nobody touches it. But that's not what's going on. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a myth. It's a myth. And, and it's destructive because it lets them get away with murder. And uh, as you say, kind of a layer of prevarication and, and lies. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's astonishing. Um, you know, you, I, I was thinking as you were talking about the magnificence of all this, you know, we live part of the year up on a river and there's no city lights and there's no, you know, um, light pollution anywhere. And you can look up as I did last night, and you can see the Milky Way, and you can feel yourself as a little speck of nothing on the, you know, at the far end of this magnificence. And, and somehow that combined with the sense that what we do or don't do will make a difference or could make a difference. Somehow that dialectic is something that I've lived with for a long time. And I wonder how you think about questions like, hope and and possibility given the the tragic story that you tell here not just tragic but there's a tragic aspect to it how do you hold on to the other end of that dialectic the sense that what we do or don't do will make a difference or could make a difference yeah it's a great question in one of the ages especially today joanne and i talk about it a lot and our friends with our friends and um so (laughs) Interesting. You know, I often reflect back, just as a a preface here, to um, when Amy Goodman interviewed Studs Terkel, and she says, what what gives you hope? What keeps you going? Right. And he just said, I want to see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He was 94 or something. Exactly, And and I love that. But the first thing I go to is, you know, this planet has withstood 
cataclysms uh, many times in the past. We're in the middle of uh, the onset of the sixth great extinction, or was it the fifth? I, can't I think it's the sixth. The sixth, right. And, you know, the, in that crisis of loss of biodiversity, uh, many scientists believe is an even greater threat than climate change. Right. And it's being unaddressed. Everything is climate change, importantly, of course, right? right. Um, however, this uh, continued destruction of habitat uh, would we don't have to have climate change for it to be the undoing even of the human species and that's right. obvious I think to any right. you know anybody over ninth grade uh, education right. uh, and uh, and many under ninth grade and by many the way. Yeah. thank you yeah. yes absolutely right yeah. no I, you know our daughter when she was growing up you know she could pose these kind of questions not yeah. about you know end times or anything but you know that where she displayed a wisdom that I yeah. had considered beyond yeah. so um you know, the the changes are going to come, you know, the, the, like the uh, song says. And the question in my mind is, uh, when will the individuals who truly have their fingers on these buttons of power, the economics in particular, government that, you know, allows economics to work the way the corporations want. I mean, this is a broad statement. There are nuances within all of this. Uh, when are they in the Exxon boardroom going to throw their hands up and say, oh my God, we can't do this anymore, you guys. We have to stop using oil. When are they going to do that? And I think that's, you know, or government intervention in a, in a really significant way. You know, being being who I am, I think that when they will do that is when we storm the boardroom and yeah. take it over and then you're sitting in the chair instead of, Instead of them, I mean, I you look at somebody like Elon Musk, and you're just more. To, I, mean, I don't know if you saw "Don't Look Up" the movie. Don't yeah, look absolutely. up. And I love the, the character best. of Elon Musk because yeah. who cares if the world can't support human life? I'll go to a different galaxy. Right. You know, I'll be fine. And monetize the end times. Yeah, yeah exactly. Not, see, the, exactly. The insanity was perfectly summed up in that. Something film. perfect in yeah. that. Yeah. Adam McKay. I mean, I want him to make this. If anybody makes this a new movie, he's got to do it. Okay, he, he has that right. We'll, it's a we'll little grandiose that. there, but I just love Adam McKay. It's Great. Um, you mentioned your daughter, um, and she's now 20? 24. 24. And did she learn things about you in this book that surprised her? I think, yeah, along the way, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she would often say, oh, I didn't know this, you know, but she knew a lot all her upbringing. She grew up with all of it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about, you know, and, and Joanne Rand, you know, her mom who's sitting over here now, um, you know, a, a really uh, formidable activist, uh, singer-songwriter in her own right. And and so Georgia grew up with these parents who talked about these things and, and actually went to events uh, where the, the focus, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because you just described Joanne as an activist singer-songwriter, and I would agree with that. And you had said when we began talking that, you were an activist in the 80s, and I wanted to put a check mark there and say, well, when did you stop being an activist? Because this is an act. Oh, yes. I mean, writing right. has its own strength as activism. And so I often think of myself that I never gave up my Weather Underground membership card. And therefore, <laughs> you know, even though it doesn't exist, I still exist. Right. And I feel like the same with Earth First. I feel Earth First around me all the time. I don't know if any of the, of the kind of official membership card holders of Earth First think that way. But I, I don't think, for someone like you, there's no way that, you, that I would say you stopped being who you were sometime in the 80s or 90s. Right. You are who you are, and now you've 
contributed this to the activism that we all are participating in. Right. Yeah, it was um, definitely a work of activism, literary activism to, exactly. get this, to get this book out. And journalists can be that too. Yeah. I want to ask you to read one other part and maybe you'll give a little prelude to it. Um, at one point, you um, and a group of fellow um, activists scaled the Golden Gate Bridge and I absolutely was holding my breath <laughs> through the whole time reading that. I couldn't believe you were up on the bridge being held by ropes and so on. Maybe say a word about that, and then maybe you just read these few paragraphs. Right. Well, that's it's a perfect uh, morphing because that was going to be my and was my last direct action okay. because there had to be a pivot to stay alive. Okay. Uh, you know, as mentioned, we were targets, but we were also risking our lives all the time just doing this kind of stuff, and so you know, in in the end, you know, I went back to journalism. I actually worked for a Republican daily, but they let me do what I wanted. And so I was able to cover cover things. As I say, journalism can be a, a form of activism. And then I founded a land trust, right. you know, in, which a friend of mine calls Rep- Republican environmentalism. Right. But we've done great work, I think. And it's a pretty activist land trust when you talk about the pesticide use up on the mouth of the Smith River. And we've been the only organization really to address that for decades. So I didn't lose that. I just, uh, I think I lost the... A lot of the militancy in in order to, um, I don't know, even just to be more effective. I don't know if it's more effective, uh, but, um, you know, you get older and and you you have to do things, I think, a little differently uh, just to stay sane. Well, you know, we do things differently in the sense that when we go on these demonstrations with our young friends, you know, we were supposed to socially distance and Bernadine and I would joke about the fact that we social, socially distance by necessity. They're marching at, you know, 30 <laughs> miles an hour and we're back here at 10 miles an hour. Yeah. But but we want to be there and we want to. And, and I'm not sure, you know, Greg, I'm not sure that any of us can decide what's more effective or most effective. I sometimes think that we think in those terms but they're not the most useful terms Mm -hmm. if we all knew what was most effective we would go there and do that i kind of am a big believer in the million experiments and keep trying and keep trying and one thing leading to another so i look at earth first and and i think of extinction rebellion and some of the other groups today and i think they're all drawing on the wisdom and the failures the wisdom and the Mm -hmm. mistakes um, of what you all tried to do um, but tell a bit about the Golden Gate Bridge action. What, were you, what the hell were you trying to do? And then read that little yeah. section. I'd had the bridge in my sights for a couple of years. You know, I was born and raised in Sonoma County. We went over the bridge in my upbringing, you know, hundreds of times. And I just knew it could be a grand visual display, which, you know, people tend to need, I guess, to uh, wake up to something. You know, they're, everybody's locked into our lives and we have our, uh, our you know, kids to get to school and then or jobs and whatever, you know, the whole thing. Um, so it, it kind of has to be a grand display in our culture, especially. And so the idea was to hang a 30 by 100 foot banner uh, with the bottom part of it 150 feet above the road on the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, so we had a large crew uh, and uh, we almost pulled it off, but not quite. Uh, I don't know what part, section you got. Yeah, read, read that little section. I, I absolutely love it. And <clears throat> Okay, I'll read this. And so... <clears throat> At 1 a.m., we loaded the cars. A reconnaissance crew returned and gave the all-clear. They also exulted. The middle two lanes are blocked off. 
I'd driven the bridge countless times at night, but had forgotten that every night, bridge authorities closed two lanes of traffic to prevent head-on collisions. There was no barrier, just orange tubes. The traffic cones, which we'd swiped, uh, were superfluous. Later, someone returned them to the construction site. We waited for barfly bitter enders to clear off the roads. Then, just before 3 a.m., we drove. We pulled three cars into the generously provided center lanes and unloaded. Traffic was light. Mike Jacobel grabbed the heavy bolt cutters, ran east, and leapt the small barrier to the walkway. We heard a loud metallic clank. Then, hoisting the bolt cutters over his head like a lance taken in battle, he sprinted gleefully across six lanes, clanked the second lock, ran south along the walkway until he was above water, and chucked the tool into San Francisco Bay. Larry Evans toted the heavy banner, while the rest of us carried the six ropes, carabiners, and assorted gear. We also had supplies of food and water, and I carried a radio phone and a camera. By 3.30 a.m., we were scaling the cables. Such a climb, even in a group, is a solo experience. No one talked. The mild hiss of traffic ebbed with ascension, and the sparkly skyscrapers of San Francisco seemed to shorten as we gained height. For safeties, we used prussic loops that extended from our harnesses to the guy cables that ran parallel to the big cables at waist level. The prussic loops ran around the small cables and locked back into the harness. Every 20 feet, we would stop to negotiate the safeties around the vertical posts that anchored the small cables. In this fashion, we quickly gained an exceptional height. Even while huffing up the wide cable, I was awed by the scene. Only the slightest breeze blew, a condition almost unheard of at the Golden Gate. At the appointed height, we stopped and quickly began pulling static lines with the paracord. Just after 5 a.m., we were set. Jesse eased himself onto the traverse, the banner in tow, and edged out onto the line, dangling hundreds of feet above the roadway. I ran two safety loops to each of my traverse lines, four safeties total, checked my gear, water, food, radio phone, camera, and turned to give Mark Haichu the thumbs up when I noticed several silhouetted figures swiftly descending the cable toward us. Shit! We'd counted on more time than this. When the bridge's iron workers got to the elevator doors and found the locks superglued, they'd simply melted the glue with a torch. <laughs> and so you never got to hang the banner, but you did make a big statement with that action. Yeah, it, was, it went around the country, you know, pretty widely. And what's wonderful, and I was just mentioning this to Joanne, is that by getting this book published, I got to hang the banner because there's oh, an illustration of it in the right. book. That's right. And as I said in the book, you know, now more than 30 years later, the messaging is even more pertinent, you know, uh, defend ancient forests, uh, international cross-out symbol across the words fossil fuels, uh, and earth first. And, and those are messages, you know, especially, you know, putting the earth first. That's why I think I was drawn to the group, because that was such a powerful name. Yeah. Uh, and they were doing direct action, whereas the, at the time, you know, in the 80s, the Reagan era was so abysmal right. for actually getting something done in the channels that were afforded us. Right. You know, the, the capitals and uh, even the courts. Uh, and so there was a, a mechanism here to forcefully address this demise. And, and it, uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem to have done much good. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't go that far. I yeah. mean, no, for me, I mean, again, it's like 
what is your what is the calculus of success? I often talk about the fact that I went down and protested against the execution of John Wayne Gacy in Illinois when they brought the death penalty. Did we save his life? No. Um, but did we put a, put a stake in the ground and stand by it? We did. And, and somehow years later, Illinois led the nation in abolishing the death penalty. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and the same is true of the first Iraq war. We didn't stop it. We had a million people in the streets. We mm -hmm. couldn't stop it. But our calculus shouldn't always be, did we get our immediate gratification goal? It should partly be, what did we learn? What identity did we build? How did we spring from that to the next thing? Mm -hmm. And one of my mantras comes from Samuel Beckett, and it's you know, the idea of try, fail, Try again, fail again, fail better. You know, and I <laughs> think great. Earth First was a classic of failing better. You know, uh -huh. and Judy Berry, I mean, the impact of Judy Berry's life on so many people, including yours, but including ours, um, mm -hmm. just the, the, the courage and the vision of, of her. So I don't want to say that she failed. She died right. young, but I don't think she failed. Yeah. I think that... You know, she's still with us on some level. Right, and I, I wouldn't have to say failed. I would just when I said I don't know what good it's done. I don't. That's the mystery. What That's true. That is, and and so, but the other part of that is I often apply uh, the first law of thermodynamics, if you will. Because I'm not a big science person, but it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. Uh, but there's some benefits to <laughs> yeah. it. But you know, energy is not lost but transferred. Exactly, and it's always there. It's always there. Yeah. So, so I agree with you. I don't think that. We should talk in terms of, of uh, loss or, or immediate victory. We should be learning and we should be growing and we should be trying to pass it on, which I think you're doing. And I think this book is a, just a magnificent example of it. It's so, so well written, so readable, and yet a very, very deep history. Uh, we're going to come to an end in a minute, um, but maybe you could tell folks who want to get a hold of you, how to get a hold of you, and also how to get a hold of Joanne Rand, because she is um, sitting next to us here, and she is, a, as you say, an activist, singer-songwriter. Maybe you could say how anyone who needs to, wants to, can get a hold of either of you. Right. Well, and first of all, I should say, I don't know if Joanne would call herself an activist singer-songwriter, but that's all I've always That's all right. We're going to call her that. That's right. And, and, I, uh, and we've got the microphone right now. That's so. right. <laughs> she usually has the microphone and is singing loud, but... Uh, yeah. Um, what was the other part of your question? Well, my question is, how do people get a hold of y'all? Oh, yes, thank you for that. So, uh, through my website, uh, people can go to Greg King Writer, G-R-E-G-K-I-N-G Writer dot com, and there's a, a, a boxes there, and it goes to my email. Uh, so it's pretty direct. Uh, and Joanne is Joanne Rand is at Joanne Rand Music dot com, and you should spell Joanne J O A N N E R A N D Music dot com. Right. Yeah. And you can get her um, CDs and... Get the music streaming and get the CDs. Uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, long, uh, long uh, au revoir. Is that how you say au revoir? Irv. Anyway, Joanne was singing when we began this episode um, a song that one of her students wrote. And we're going to go out with her song, Redwood. Uh, but before we sing Redwood, maybe you'd read just two paragraphs from a letter your mother wrote to you. She wrote it before she died, um, and she died young of cancer. Yeah. But she had left this letter for you, and your dad dug it out after she passed. Yes. Uh, she was diagnosed in 1968, early 68, with terminal breast cancer. And doctors gave her six months to live. 
And so she wrote all three of her children a letter. Uh, she lived another 22 years and then died of cancer. Uh, but And so when she died in 1990, uh, in August of 1990, and, you know, it's shortly after the bombing, and I was at home to be with her and my family, uh, but also in the safety of family. When you say shortly after the bombing, you mean the bombing that attempted to assassinate Judy Berry? Yes, uh, sorry, Judy yeah. Berry and, and Daryl Cherney in, in Oakland. Uh, and so we were in a, a royal and felt quite in danger. So I was in the safety of family, as I describe it. And then my dad hands us each, my sisters and I each, a letter that my mom had written 22 years earlier. Uh, and so this is part of it. It will be my hope that you will always pursue the avenues of experimentation and explore all the roots of your inclination. In whatever areas of knowledge you feel most comfortable, never allow yourself to become too comfortable, too satisfied with your accomplishments. Originality, the creative spirit, cannot flourish in a stifled atmosphere which too often follows on the heels of comfort. Always feel free to explore, Gregor, even in the face of failure and grave disappointment. Be not hesitant, then, after the rigors of attaining knowledge through the collective knowledge of man that is provided through schools to strike out with directness and freely on your own experimentations. The specifics of your choice of special interests is important only if it is here you be the most free and creative. So you have perceived by now, Gregor, it is your mind and the freedom of your spirit with which I am so concerned. The kind of man you are depends on the direction of these two aspects of your person. You have always had an open and friendly manner, and I hope this warm quality has stayed with you. For your own sake, always remain an open person, ready to give love and friendship to others. As in a painting, Gregor, it is the contrasts that give the composition strength. So in our growth as persons, our strength grows from the contrasts in our lives. Even as a little boy, your laughter has been a joy to all your family, that ability of yours to hear the joke when it missed others. That quality you have for finding the fun in life, I hope will sustain you through times that may seem too dark, even for a smile. I mean, I fell in love with your mother uh, yeah. in this book, and that letter is particularly poignant to it's end amazing. the book. It's, it's an amazing thing that she yeah. wrote it 22 years before she died, right. and somehow she nailed the message uh, so so perfectly. Right when I needed it. Right when you needed it. Yeah. And, the, and look, where are we now? We're living in a dark, dark, dark time, mm -hmm. and, and yet finding joy and taking care of people and realizing that anger... You know, is necessary. Being pissed off is necessary, mm -hmm. but it won't get us to where we want to go. And your That's mom right. said, "What gets you where you want to go is loving others and and uh, investing in others." And right. I think you've tried to live your life that way, and I admire you so much for it. I just yeah. can't thank you enough for taking the time and sitting in your backyard with us. Um, it's been a real pleasure, and I urge people to read this book. Um, it'll it'll change your way of thinking about where we are. Uh, in the, in the life of the universe. So thank you, Greg. That's very nice. Thank you, Bill. It's been a real honor. Sing to the redwood, breathing in, breathing out. Stretch your branches to the sky. Sing to the redwood, mother of all creation. Touch the sky. We feel your arms around. 
canopy clan on high we feel your magnificent cool and peaceful sizing to the redwoods sing to the forests time on earth beyond all knowing sing to the forests hate and girth beyond all growing most of all it's the place got to save you from this plunder generations down the line sing to the old ones heart and soul and influence mine you give me voice compel me to say they cannot kill and carry you away sacred rage lead where you may sing from my backyard under the tree conversation with Greg King. My head was spinning with what we talked about, all the grooves and the gullies we traveled through, all the fragments from his amazing book, but also things I wished we'd gotten to. 
I've never done this before, but I called him up and asked if he'd be down for a short addendum on Zoom. He said yes. So a few days later, we picked up where we'd left off. In the spirit of Ergo's One Million Experiments, we'll call this addendum our peer review. Hi, Greg. Welcome back. Hi, Bill. Great to be back. Um, yeah, it was such a great conversation we had the other day, and I, I realized I realized a few things we left off, and and of course I also realized that we could talk for a week and and not cover all the things that we might cover together. So we have to keep going. That's the the short version, and uh, we agreed that when your paperback version of this book comes out, you'll come to Chicago and we'll do a book event at the that'd be amazing, wonderful. Yeah, the amazing Pilsen yeah. Community Books. Um, anyway, before we begin to chop it up a bit more, one thing we didn't do and that we have a, an obligation to do is to name the singer-songwriter who um, wrote the song Happy Song. Joanne does two songs on the episode. One is Redwood. That's what we go out on. But we come in on Happy Song, which Joanne performs, but a friend and a student of hers wrote it. Could you tell us her name? Uh, it is Elizabeth Gom. And okay. she's a local Humboldt County uh, performing songwriter Great. and a wonderful songwriter. Yes. Yeah, it's a terrific song and it's very uplifting. And I, I liked using it to begin because we got into some pretty dark places. But but it's important to remember that joy is also um, an, impart, an important part of our lives. Um, but getting, getting on to uh, where we were, the one thing that we didn't talk about that I'd wanted to was the brilliant, brilliant book, um, Overstory, which won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction uh, a few years ago. And you and I were both stunned by the book when it came out. Tell folks a little bit about Overstory. Uh, Overstory, uh, a lot of us uh, in the Redwood activist community were excited about release of Overstory because we understood part of it at least was going to deal with uh, some of the actions that we had done in the Redwoods, or at least focus on Redwood activism, right? It's Richard Powers' book, uh, The Great American Novelist. Uh, and what really got me was the first many chapters of the book, uh, Powers weaves this brilliant uh, collection of characters and trees, and they're all associated with different trees. <clears throat> and... Uh, so uh, that really captured me right away. And of course, I've always loved Richard Powers. He's, again, he's, I, I don't want to say unheralded because he's so famous, but I mean, I don't think people really appreciate what a master he is. Uh, in any case, uh, what was interesting to me was when I got almost halfway through and entered the Redwood activism stage and, and saw, you know, kind of a uh, facsimile of what some of us were doing in the Redwoods, tree sitting in particular, and some of the characters, I balked a little bit and I put the right. book down and I had to walk away for just a little while and think about it and then get out of my nonfiction literalist mind and go into this truly great mind of the novelist. And, and I started the book again and I read the whole thing through in about a week, which is pretty mm -hmm. fast for me and really loved it and actually got teary eyed in it. And, it, you know, it's not a literal representation of what we did, you know, for instance, especially the all the property destruction stuff, which other people were doing. Uh, you know, our group had forsworn that early and we didn't do it. Um, but uh, it was such a tender and empathetic uh, look at 
why people would risk their lives and their careers and their freedom, you know, to save these kind of last vestiges of, of wildlands. And so I deeply appreciated that. Uh, I started a correspondence with Richard Powers uh, at that time, and we we have been corresponding occasionally. He's very generous. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people want to talk with him, and and we, we've we've had a nice rapport. And uh, and then I read his next book, uh, Bewilderment, which I also I just want to pitch because it's much simpler and direct, and very few characters, and profound. It's a profound. Uh, kind of follow-up almost to the overstory. So really wonderful, wonderful writing and and heart uh, more yeah. than anything, yeah. Well, let's go back to overstory. You said in the first several pages, he introduces a set of characters and a set of trees. That's what captured me. You have a researcher, you have activists, you have foresters, and then you have all these trees. Talk a bit about who those characters are. Right. Well, there was a um, a young man who had grown up uh, in, God, I wish I could remember where it was, uh, somewhere in the Midwest, um, but with a chestnut tree, a planted chestnut. And the generations uh, of individuals knew that chestnut tree, and they had this wonderful kind of flip book. It turned into a flip book of photos taken of the chestnut tree over these many years. And there, that resonated with me for two reasons. Uh, first of all, we know about the chestnut blight and that, you know, brought in uh, by international commerce uh, on, uh, I guess, a fungus of some sort that that didn't exist here previously on, on in North America and wiped out this amazing tree and an incredible food source. And here was one that, you know, was, uh, I think, across the Mississippi. And so it did get the blight, something like that. I don't want to get this wrong. It's been a, a couple of years since I read the book. But uh, that the relationship of the family, of the individuals with that tree and with trees in general through, woven throughout the book was so special because we have always had that as a people. You know, there are peoples, of course, who didn't have much in the way of forest throughout history, but most people did. Right. In history, and right. they're a very important part of the uh, spirit, and I think the DNA of even humans. These forests, so so that was really wonderful to me. Someone who's uh, you know fifth generation redwood area, which isn't very long when you talk about indigenous people, uh, but for you know Western you know post European individuals, it, it is, and and so we had this connection to place and to a certain type of tree in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that individual goes on to do some direct action in the Redwoods. One of the characters in the early part of the book is a researcher. And I love the character, um, but she's based on a real person, a Canadian, um, and a, a Canadian ecologist. But what I loved is that she had this theory, which was debunked for a long time and now is completely accepted, which is that the trees are talking to each other. And they're talking to each other very explicitly. Um, They're communicating chemically and in other ways, and that we're not listening. Talk a bit about her. Right. That that was one of the most wonderful parts of the book, because as you say, communicating chemically, spiritually, uh, how could we go into these forest groves and and not feel them? And and if you spend enough time there, understand them, maybe a lifetime, right? Because they're on a much different timeline than we are. Uh, the character's name is Patricia Westerford, uh, and she was based on the work of the Canadian ecologist Suzanne Simard. 
and yes, Simard was really taken to task by her uh, peers in the science community for developing a theory that proponed trees talk to each other or communicate, not necessarily talk, this is a very human word, uh, through their roots in particular and through the mycorrhizae that connect the uh, fungi to the roots of the uh, forest. And um, But also in terms of the redwood, this really struck home with me because uh, the redwood roots are intertwined. Uh, it's a very unusual forest in that way, uh, in that the roots support each other. And when you cut down a 2,000-year-old redwood, which, of course, there are far too many cut down, uh, those roots don't die, and they support mm -hmm. the next set of trees. And so you have these ancient uh, root systems interconnected that, of course, are sharing some kind of knowledge. But, you know, she uh, pointed out, uh, Simard, in her research, that uh, when something would happen to a tree is when a certain area was cut down, the other trees knew about it uh, in, in their way. And, of course, she says that much better than I do. Um, but beyond that, beyond the scientific understanding, um, of course, these beings are sentient. Of course, they communicate. They Redwoods channel 500 gallons of water a day. They're living, breathing entities. How could they not have some form of communication? It's so arrogant for humans, as we always have been, to believe that other species don't have feelings or, and especially plants, right? It's just a plant. You just cut it down. Nobody cares. Um, and then when you think about the world, the worlds that these forests support of other creatures, the interconnected dynamism of hundreds, if not thousands of living species, how could there not be communication? How could there not be a sentient forest there? I just love that concept. And as I say, I think science has, has affirmed that early um, research that she did. And even though she was kind of ridiculed and <laughs> drummed out of the profession, um, right. she was right. She was right. Um, yes. I'm going to shift gears. And you had said a couple of times uh, today and then the other day um, that your group forswore property destruction. And of course, I, that was a tactical and, a, and a, in some ways a strategic decision. But as someone who engaged in property destruction myself, yeah. I wanted you to dilate on that point just a bit. Um, uh, is it justified sometimes to destroy property in in uh, toward a larger goal, in your view? Yeah, that is that is really an excellent question. And I'm, I'm reticent to even answer it. Um, I think that what, what we had going on in the Redwoods, A, um, if you destroyed property, you weren't going to be hurting the corporation. And that might be applicable across the board. I don't want to speak for other people in that respect, especially in other countries where people are dying. To, and people have died in this country to support, uh, you know, the forests or the ecosystems that aren't, you know, just human. Um, so, uh, but, you know, you weren't going to hurt the corporation. It was going to be a small operator. Uh, you also were then going to raise animosity and uh, and make it more dangerous to conduct forest activism, you know, we were sitting 150 feet up in trees. If the operator had had, you know, bulldozers destroyed the previous week, you know, maybe we would have been cut down, uh, you know, and, and uh, David Gypsy Chain in 1998 was killed by a 
vehemently angry logger who had threatened to kill them, the activists, and then dropped a tree right on top of him. Uh, yeah. And But there had been no property destruction as far as I know. I wasn't really involved with the Earth First movement in the 1990s. It was 86 to 1990, basically, was my involvement. Uh, and we very early on forced war property destruction for political and strategic reasons, but also you know, I come from a very working class uh, family. My uh, grandfather was a county road foreman. He owned heavy machinery. Uh, he was a very kind man. He was not rich. And had somebody destroyed his machines, it would have set him back. And so I understood that. Um, and also, and the other part of this, this is that we were allied with timber workers in, in a lot of ways, many of whom couldn't um, acknowledge us publicly. But we work directly, especially Judy Berry, with timber workers. So all of the above, strategically, from my perspective, morally, uh, in our country at least, um, you know, and I will reflect back on what where you guys were. As you said to me when we talked earlier, you know, the U.S. government was killing a thousand people a, a day in Southeast Asia uh, in really abhorrent and illegal um slaughters and it was a, a different era and again i won't speak to the actions of others um but you know that was what needed to be addressed you know mm -hmm. and same with the corporations being able to take over a a, a company and liquidate its assets in this case the last ancient redwoods on earth mm -hmm. so we didn't want to dis detract from that message and it would have i get you and i think that there's a lot of wisdom there and i think I, like you, I've never considered myself a tactician. So when people ask me about tactics that we use, I always defer because um, that's not where my mind is. I'm, I'm thinking of something larger than tactics. And I also think of Martin Luther King, who refused to denounce the rioters in the Watts Rebellion um, mm -hmm. and, and, and said, my concern is the greatest purveyor of violence on earth, which is my government, sadly. So I think I think it's a complicated tangle to get into. But it leads me to just a couple more quick questions. And we talked a little bit the other day about today's activists and the kind of legacy of Earth First. Um, but, but maybe you have a word to say about uh, Cop City in Atlanta, which is, I don't know if you've been following it, but it's a kind of coming together of environmental activism and resistance and uh, abolition activism and resistance. And I wonder if you've seen much of that or, or, or followed it at all. Oh, yes, I've definitely been following it. And I think the convergence of forest activism and the need to uh, disassemble the growing police state in the United States is rather compelling. Uh, and also the racial aspect in Atlanta, which is majority black, but, but is, you know, is, um, still has a deeply racist, uh, under, undercurrent, um, perhaps not like a, a lot of, um, you know, places, uh, that are deep, you know, segregated. Um, it, but in any case, I can't speak for the, you know, community of Atlanta so much as to, um, speak to that situation where, uh, there's kind of a an out of control growth of police and uh, violence in this country, and we see, uh, you know, the uh, um, early stages of fascism that have really emerged in the 2010s, in particular, uh, and it's deeply disturbing. And you know, I'm not the only one to say this. You know, it's uh, historians who have looked at fascism throughout the 20th century. You know, understand 
these indicators. And I don't think I even need to say what they are. It's pretty, pretty obvious if anybody's paying attention. Um, but that situation is emblematic of where we're headed as a country. We can either abandon the idea of this apparent need or this alleged need for, you know, a more militarized uh, police force um, with, you know, training centers that have entire towns built so you can learn how to take over communities. Uh, or we can um, actually make the world a little more fair and equitable. Everybody gets good health care. Everybody gets a home. There's no poor people. Uh, and there's no super rich people either. Uh, I mean, the e equations are really simple. Uh, you know, the fixes, if you will, no, nothing is a uh, panacea. But the um, we know, understand what the problems are, the injustices, the, the brutality of marginalized uh, populations and we see that represented in cop city and it's uh it's deeply disturbing in this in this period in our country's life yeah it, it's really true and i was i was biking along the river this morning and thinking about these issues thinking about the link we have to trees to other species and also thinking that while every there are m many 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 sentient beings um we have this kind of what we consider a superior intelligence, capacity to understand, capacity to see the future, and somehow collectively are unwilling to do the things we need to do to stop the madness. And uh, it, it's staggering that disconnect somehow, you know, that we, we know what's coming. We know that we're killing the possibility of life on earth. We're not killing the earth. We're killing the possibility of Human life on Earth, and uh, and yet we proceed, uh, and we endure. It's it's madness. Um, drives me crazy. Yes, it is a madness. And I'm reading right now Barry Lopez's uh, penultimate book, uh, Horizon, which is truly a remarkable achievement in his analysis of these exact things you're talking about. Uh, looking at you know ancient history, the evolution of the human. Uh, species for hundreds of thousands and millions of years, and then right up to the present moment in our in this time we face. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, as I as I said earlier, I think you know how is it possible for uh, you know just to use an example, Exxon directors to sit in their board meetings and not throw up their hands and say, "My God, we can't do this anymore." Um, you know, how is that possible? given the stakes, given where we're at, given that every scientific community in the world understands not only that climate change could be the undoing of the ability of humans to live on this planet, but that um, the diminishment of biological diversity alone, um, even perhaps more so, there's a, a sect of, not sect, a sector of scientific analysis that believes that even without climate change, the, um, you know, destruction of biodiversity could very well be our undoing. And so it's it's sort of like mass suicide directed from a very few people. I don't think right. most people in the world would um, go down this path if they had the power to stop it. And finding that, that power is extremely difficult. I think it was we've all seen through the years. It's difficult, but it's uh, within reach and it involves collective power, because uh, as we often say, when we're marching in the streets, we are many. They are few. They have the power. Um, they have the guns. but. Uh, we also have masses of people if we could organize ourselves and point ourselves in the right direction. Um, one last uh, modern campaign to ask you about is um, just stop oil. In Europe, do you know this campaign about um, 
Because in many ways, as Roxana pointed out to me, um, part of the legacy of Earth First is is in the rest of the world, in Europe, um, certainly um, Extinction Rebellion and other militants have picked up the mantle, which you guys, you know, were deeply a part of a short time ago. And so Just Stop Oil is part of that legacy. Do you know about that movement? You know, I've heard of it. I think that it's uh, the perfect um, name <laughs> because it says it all. You know, interestingly, and uh, you know, I cover this in, in the book, but um, when we did our 1990 uh, occupation of the Golden Gate Bridge, that was one of three messages uh, in our 30 by 100 foot banner was the word fossil fuels with the international red cross out symbol. Uh, that was even then, obviously, uh, going to be our undoing, just the burning of fossil fuels. And, and now we have this uh, president who uh, promised no more Arctic drilling, you know, immediately countenanced more Arctic drilling. And where are we supposed to go with this? I understand the militancy, the, the fervor uh, of, you know, the need for uh, people to get out in the streets. And as, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the great activist from Berkeley in the 60s who said you need to throw your body into the gears of, um, what is his name? Mario uh, Savio. Thank you. I, I knew yeah. you'd know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what? everybody should listen to that speech. You know, if you want a little rousing, uh, you know, and also he was, of course, an activist. He worked. He didn't just give speeches. He worked quite a bit. And, um, so, uh, you know... I, uh, how could the young people not, and all of us, but especially the young people, their future, how could they not get out in the streets and just say, we can't, we can't go this route anymore. We can't do this anymore. And how anybody in power can make these decisions that not only perpetuate the ongoing um, destruction of the, you know, the systems that keep even us alive, but are accelerating and amping up, you know, more. More, I mean, the fossil fuel use in the last 10 years is higher than ever in history. And the amount of carbon going into the atmosphere in the last 10 years is higher than ever in history. That's insane. Uh, and so where to go with this? You know, there's always hope. And the hope is, I think, in the young people that I see and, and in these these movements. Um, so but personally, where do I go with this? I just I talk a lot. <laughs> that's good i think it was marx who said uh only a fool has famous last words the rest of us keep talking so keep that's right talking, Greg. that's great that's great keep, yeah. keep talking i really appreciate your time um and and let's keep chopping it up and let's keep going and uh thanks again for your wisdom and for your time well thank you bill this has been wonderful okay folks let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo. Co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your brief time in the light a moment to reimagine, repair, and reclaim this decimated forest and this broken world. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.